Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, Amy Wright sits down for a one-on-one conversation with Nashville-based artist Joshua Headley. A recent signee to New West Records, Headley is an ace fiddle player, guitarist, and country music singer-songwriter. He's devoted his entire life to the study of country and western music, really, a life which he and Amy discuss in detail this hour. They also chat a great deal about his debut album for New West, Neon Blue, a record with 90s country influences, but a discernibly tasteful and modern production. Here at Diddy TV, we fell in love with Headley's sound after the release of his debut LP, Mr. Jukebox, which we named one of the best records of 2018, and we think his trajectory as an artist is still upward and bright. Let's get into it, and we'll catch up again at the end of the show. From Diddy TV, here's Joshua Headley with Amy Wright on Insights. So where did, where did you grow up, Joshua? Uh, I grew up in Naples, Florida. Um... I was born down there in Southwest Florida uh, and lived there for the first 19 years of my life before I moved up here to Nashville. Was there a lot of fishing going on in, in Naples? I did, my, I did my fair share of fishing, that's for sure. Um, yeah, that's actually, I don't miss a lot about living down there, um, but I do miss the wildlife aspect of it for sure my friends and the wildlife that's about it so now your first instrument was uh the violin right yeah yeah i asked for a fiddle when i was three years old so do you remember why you wanted to play the violin i mean that's so young you probably don't remember do your parents remember no nobody knows why uh (laughs) (laughs) my parents didn't um they did not listen to country music. My dad was a big, big into uh, soul music, you know, Motown and Stax. Otis Redding was his favorite. And my mom, like, you know, oldies radio. She loved Neil Diamond. And uh, yeah, I did not grow up around country music at that age. It wasn't, you know, I got a fiddle when I was eight. And that's sort of when country music entered my life uh was about eight years old but prior to that I, nobody really knows why i knew what a fiddle was <laughs> but that's so, what i asked for specifically was fiddle i'm guessing it was on a cartoon but that could just you know <laughs> i could be wrong about that you had to have probably seen it somewhere could yeah, be maybe in school <laughs> did uh did jiminy cricket play a fiddle or something i think so i think so and he was pretty cool that so, might be you know. it. <laughs> so when you started playing the violin, was it already uh, non-classical music or were you playing classical music? It was both. Um, that was sort of the, I don't know, I guess the condition was, you know, my, my parents, if, you know, if I was going to do it, I had to really do it. I had to really learn it. And so they enrolled me in... Um, private classical lessons uh thing called the suzuki method which is um a great you know classical learning tool for young children 
and it really focuses a lot on ear training and stuff like that and as well as uh as well as like music reading and stuff but um i took these classical lessons and then my my classical teacher knew um that i wanted to play the fiddle so she would teach herself a fiddle tune and then at the end of my classical studies uh at the end of the lesson she would teach me a fiddle tune and that's sort of i did that for a couple of years um until i started to get kind of good at it and then i started going to bluegrass jams and sitting in with country bands at the local you know vfw or american legion and you know i did that sort of around the southwest florida area until about 12 years old when i started doing it professionally so how did you even find those bluegrass jams when you're a kid like that uh i don't really know my parents found them you know just word of mouth around town uh you know somebody heard of one somewhere and i would go up to it in fort myers and you know or somebody said hey there's a there's a country jam thing going on at the american legion you could probably go and sit in and that's sort of how i got my start in the business was sitting in in these little jam sessions and eventually you know they started paying me to be in the band and then it all just took off from there i started going i started visiting um nashville in the summers around the same time that i started playing professionally back home and uh it was over after that i knew i just knew that's what that's what i was going to do you could see it like in my report cards as my playing <laughs> ability starts to go this way my school grades started going this way <laughs> Because I just knew, I was like, well, that's it. I know what I'm doing for the rest of my life. So you were playing professionally then in high school already? Yeah, pretty much every weekend. Oh. It's definitely so you're, strange you're thinking this is Yeah, so you're thinking this is what I want to do with my life. Um, what it, you graduate from high school and you go directly to Nashville? Or did you? was there kind of a delay there? Um, I graduated from high school and I bummed around Naples for a year, uh, just sort of stacking a little bit of money. So I had something with me when I, when I made the move. And then I knew, uh, I had a friend that I met, um, in, at one of these, you know, one of these jams, one of these bluegrass jams, uh, named Chris Stokes, who had a house in Nashville and, um, he said, yeah, when you're ready to move up to Nashville, you can live in my basement as long as you need until you find a place. And so I moved up to Nashville with about, I don't know, 1500 bucks or something in my pocket and lived in uh, a friend's basement for about six months until I got my first apartment um, when I was about, I don't know, I guess 19 or 20, something like that. What did you learn from all those pickers that you jammed with for so many years? Um, I learned a lot, you know, just soaking in all the tunes, you know, all the all the songs. That's what really that's what really started my education. But 
um, but moving to Nashville, uh, moving to Nashville is what whipped me into shape for sure. You know, learning when to play, when not to play, um, learning more about chord structures and, you know, just the technical aspect of music that uh, most people don't think about, myself included at that time, you know, but it was, you know, it, it doesn't matter how good you are in your hometown. When you move to Nashville, you get your, you get your butt kicked real fast. Uh, or at least you did in 2004. But yeah, that was, that was the real beginning of my musical education was when I moved up here. So when you say you can get your butt kicked, you were obviously already really good. So you, it was a notch up from that though. So what was it that was so different that you felt like, Hey, I've got a whole another road path ahead of me to learn. Um, it was just, you know, you learn, you learn pretty quick that you're not as good as you thought you were, you know, you, you know, the, the caliber it's, it's just like, it's just like in Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles is full of models because that's where the modeling industry is. So everybody in LA is beautiful and this and that, and you come to Nashville and all the players in Nashville are good because if you want to play country music, this is where you go. So all the best people move here and the level of musicianship uh, is just, it's just above the rest anywhere else. And how to get in with it or you get chewed up and spit out real fast, especially if you're, you know, at the time that I moved up here, I was primarily an instrumentalist. So, you know, that's, that's the real, that's the crazy, that's the crazy stuff is the pickers in town and, and uh, trying to match talent level with them. You either learn quick or you go home. So, so when did you, when did you start singing? Uh, I started singing, I guess I was probably about 15 years old, but I was primarily a harmony singer um and you know i I would play with bands and i would sing my own stuff too but for the most part i was a fiddle player who sang harmony um harmony just it was something i could always hear ever since i was a a little kid i remember well i don't remember but you know my mom driving me to preschool when i was you know three years old and listening to the Everly brothers and singing a third harmony with them when I was just a little kid. It is just, I don't know if that ability is just something you're born with in your ears or what, but it's just something that I was always able to do. So I, I was able to carve out a pretty good living for a long time, uh, just playing fiddle and singing harmony. And it wasn't really until, um, it wasn't really until I came up here that I really started, you know, putting a band together of my own and, and, um, and fronting and hell, I didn't start writing songs until, I don't know, I guess I was in my thirties almost. So, you know, I, I actually play the, the violin as well. 
and I sing harmonies. Oh, cool. But I always wondered if it was because of playing the violin, because, you know, you're always playing these alternative melodies, and you had to get in your yeah, head that it I wasn't that, just a harmony. I think that has a lot to do with it, um, especially for me specifically, you know, I've one of the first... One of the first things I found in country music was Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and that's all twin fiddle. So, you know, I was 12, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old and learning these melody parts and then learning the harmony parts to go along with them. So I would hear these twin fiddles and I would hear the melody and the harmony together. And I think maybe I think you're you're right i i agree with you that i think the violin or the fiddle has a lot to do with somebody's ear and how they hear and perceive harmonies so you get to nashville and you get gigs obviously and then you were playing at robert's western world on broadway when did oh, yeah. that start still do still do all right you have a standing uh, it gig started there. pretty quick oh yeah as they're gonna have to it's it's I'm either gonna have to die or they're gonna have to fire me because <laughs> I'll never I'll always play there. I love that place. Um, I moved up in 2004, and I I went to work first at Tootsie's um, pretty much right away. I had been coming up uh, since '96 in the summers and sitting in with bands on Broadway. So there was a few bands that already knew who I was. And there was a guy named Jesse Taylor who played at Tootsie's. And he told me uh, before I moved up there, he said, you know, if you ever move here, I'll give you a gig. And I, I don't think he really expected me to do it. Uh, but I did. I moved up and uh, and he offered me a gig. And I, I started playing there. And then I sat in with a friend of a friend's band at Roberts. And then that friend of a friend started calling me every week to play with them. And that's how I got in at Roberts. It was just sort of happenstance. And, and uh, now 17 years later, here I am still playing at Roberts. So while playing at Roberts, is that how you got the nickname, Mr. Jukebox? Yeah, I don't, I can't, I couldn't tell you exactly how it happened. Uh, I was very drunk in those times. Uh, so <laughs> the exact story of how it happened is a little bit blurry to me. But, but um, yeah, that's, that's where it's, that's, that's how it, that's how I, you know, really it comes from all the years of doing this, but the moniker was coined at Roberts for sure. So was it because you know so many songs, so many country cover songs, or what was the genesis there? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's just, you know, I've been doing it my whole life, and, you know, I mean, I'm 37, started when I was eight, so it's been almost 30 years that I've been doing this now. And uh, 
in 30 years, you learn a lot of songs and I'm still learning new songs every day. So it's a, it's a never ending pursuit to learn all the songs ever recorded (laughs) (laughs) until 1985. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, what is your favorite era of uh, country music to sing? Uh, there is no favorite. It's, it's just all of it. I like Jimmy Rogers songs from the twenties. I like Mark Chestnut songs from the nineties. It's, it's everything. Every, every era of country music has something special about it. Um, and I'm in love with every, every bit of it. Um, it's like, it's like air to me. I need it. I gotta have it. So your first album was actually called Mr. Jukebox, and you put that out in 2018, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, that was an unexpected uh, turn in my career. That was it. Sort of, um, sort of just materialized out of people, my friends, hassling me to make a record. Uh, I had no real plans of pursuing any kind of recording career. I was playing at Roberts a handful of times a week and touring on the road with a guy named Johnny Fritz. And I wrote the song Weird Thought Thinker just because I had it kicking around in my head and I figured I ought to write it down. So I wrote that song. It came out of me in about seven minutes. You know, it was just one of those songs that just like spilled out. And I played it for Johnny and he loved it. And so we would be on the road and Johnny would hand me his guitar and have me play Weird Thought Thinker in the middle of his shows. And then I wrote another song and he would have me play that one. And then I wrote another song and he would have me play that one. And and pretty soon it turned into me opening for Johnny and playing with Johnny. And then me opening for Johnny turned into me getting my own my own gigs in Australia. And I found out pretty quick that you need something to sell at the merch table when you're on tour. That's how you make your money. So I made an EP... Um, I made an EP at a friend's house in his home studio and brought it with me to Australia and sold it and people heard it. And I had friends like Johnny and Nikki Lane, people just, you know, telling me that I needed to make a record. I need to make a record. So I, I brought it. I can't remember exactly. I had to, there was some sort of legal thing that I had to do for it. So I brought it to a friend of mine who's an entertainment lawyer named uh, Jeff Colton. And he was like, Ed, this is killer. Like, can I send this to some people? And I was like, sure. Why the hell not? You know, might as well. And one of those people, you know, one of those labels was third man records. And, uh, they approached me about putting it out on vinyl and I was like, sure, you know, that's great. It was a four song, I think EP. 
And um, I said, yeah, that's, let's go, let's do it. But just so you know, I have more songs if you ever wanted to do anything else. And that turned into a record deal. And that's where Mr. Jukebox came from. It's just sort of organically sprouted up from the ground. So you were obviously thinking you were never putting out an album. You were just going to play music and be an instrumentalist, maybe a backup vocalist or maybe a front person on occasion. But you put out this album and that had to change your life a little bit, I would think. Everything instantly. But like it was just totally different from the word go. You know, it. I think NPR debuted it and it was just like, wait a second, NPR wants to talk to me? I mean, I've been in the NPR, I've done NPR stuff with Justin Towns Earl or Johnny Fritz, you know, but they want to talk to me? Why? I'm still very much in the mindset of like, it's just something that I do, you know, and I'm still kind of flabbergasted that any of this stuff goes on, you know, it's still, I still feel like the same dude who played 14 shifts a week downtown when he was 25, you know, like that's still, I'm still fully into the, it still feels like a hustle. You know, it still feels like this is, this is what I do for a living, but it's just like people are aware of it now. Whereas before I just, you know, I was just a guy on Broadway making music, playing the bills. And, uh, yeah, it's wild. It's wild that like I'm doing essentially the same thing I've always done, but now people write about it. Now we're doing an interview about it and it's, it's still kind of surreal to me that any of it's happening. Well, how do, how do you uh, feel about going from anonymity, so to speak, to being known? Because that can also be kind of a transition. There's a positive aspect to it. And then there's a, oh, everybody knows who I am now. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm in a sweet spot. You know, I like where I'm at right now. Um, you know, there are people who are fans of country music who know who I am, but I can also go to Kroger whenever I want. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not Garth Brooks who can't leave the house. I'm, you know, I'm still very much just a guy. I'm just a guy that, you know, some people are aware of now, which is, I like that. I like being in that thing because it is like, it does feel kind of cool when somebody comes up to you out, out somewhere and is like, Hey, I'm a big fan. It's like, well, that's pretty cool that that just happened. You know, it's still kind of, it hasn't lost its charm on me for sure. So we're going to get to Neon Blue, which is your new album. Were you writing these songs during COVID? Were you doing other things? What have you been up to? I was writing songs. I was trying to do everything that I could to keep busy during COVID. Um, I also quit drinking again during COVID. So I was trying to stay sober and um, stay busy. So, you know, idle hands and all that. 
Uh, so yeah, I was writing. I I was. I wrote all these songs kind of during COVID, but prior to that, I hadn't been doing anything really. So I didn't have any songs when I was approached to make Mr. Jukebox. I didn't have any songs. I didn't have any ideas. Uh, I was coming off of like a two year bender and um, yeah, it was just creatively drained and had nothing going on. So I knew pretty quick that I was going to have to do some co-writing for this record. And uh, I got in touch with my publisher and um, he put me together with a few co-writes and we did them all on Zoom, um, which was which was a cool experience. I really I actually really enjoy co-writing on Zoom, but um, you know, I, I, I clicked with a guy named Carson Chamberlain who had, he was Keith Whitley's steel guitarist and band leader um, for, I think like the entirety of Keith's career. And uh, he had written a handful of hits in the nineties um, songs for George Strait and Alan Jackson and folks like that. And he and I just clicked and he brought in a couple other writers, a guy named Wyatt McCubbin and a guy named Zach Top. And the in some form of three, uh, we wrote the bulk of the record um, that became Neon Blue. And, you know, I just, had it not been for those guys, um, I wrote some songs with my co my producer Skylar Wilson and and my publisher. I'd still be sitting here, you know, with no songs, probably doing nothing, not having this interview. So most of most of twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one was spent writing songs and making this album, which was which was a huge godsend for me because I don't know if I would have stayed sober for these two years without it. Well, you became sober in a time when it was tough for everybody and, and sort of not having that, that sort of safety net, obviously it was great that you had something you could, you were passionate about that you could work on something creative and obviously kept you busy. You know, the, the whole neon blue that brings, brings to mind a really great vision. I don't know. Have you ever been to the Neon Sign Museum in Las Vegas? I have not. Um, honestly, I didn't know that there was one. But now that I know, next time I'm in Vegas, I'm going to have to seek that out because I love neon signs. <laughs> Listen, you're going to be in heaven this place is downtown Vegas, not on the Strip, downtown Vegas. It's outdoors, and the time to go is at night because they have all of these old neon signs from all these old Vegas hotels, and they've restored them, other, other signs cool. too, but it's all outdoors, and you're just walking through all this neon. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I love that. That's, that's my, uh, you know, that was one of the things that 
that drew me to Nashville was the neon. I mean, it was coming from where I came from. That was not a thing. So seeing all the neon signs was like a total culture shock for me when I was, you know, a kid just first visiting here. And that's definitely one of the things that drew me into this town. So I, I love neon. I'm a big fan of neon signs and, uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to go seek that out for sure. So then what does neon blue mean to you and how does it kind of um, encapsulate what you're trying to do with this album? I mean, neon blue just kind of feels like it's a certain kind of heartache, you know? It's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's it's It just is a clever little, I came up with that line she turned my honky tonk heart neon blue and uh i presented it to carson and we sort of just rolled with it and and the song became what it ended up to be but you know it's just sort of i mean what happens when you get your heart broken in a honky tonk it turns neon blue you know it's that's the color of a that's a color of a heartbreak within the kind the confines of a honky tonk in downtown Nashville. I read a little bit about the album and uh, before I listened to it and you you were trying to to really put an album out there that was say more of a party album, right? Something that people could yeah. really just have fun to. And so you set about to do that. Yeah, that was definitely a uh, predetermined goal. Um, I sort of just took a look at the last couple of years with literally the entire world had. And I thought, you know, I really probably shouldn't. I love Mr. Jukebox. I love that record. But it's a bummer. Like, it is a <laughs> bummer record. There is no way around that. It is a sad sack, like broken heart, you know, crying your beer album. And I just figured everybody has done enough crying and enough beers for in the last couple of years. So, you know, I, I've, I figured I'm going to give people a party record. I didn't know what 2022 was going to be like. I had I figured that the record was probably going to come out in 2022, just timeline wise, um, and the fact that you know nobody was putting out records in 2020, and then 2021 was similar, not quite as bad, but you know similar. So I figured, you know, who knows what's going to be happening in 2022. But regardless, I'm going to put out a party record. I mean, obviously, there's sad songs on it. You can't have a country record without some heartbreakers. <laughs> there's belly rubbers. You know, you got to have the slow dance always. Uh, but, you know, it, it's. I just wanted to make a record that when we finally get out of this whole thing and people are partying on their boats in the summer 
you know, I want a record that you could put on there and just blast off of your pontoon boat (laughs) 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 this summer. So that was the intent. Well, in the South, you'd be on your boat water skiing with your cooler, you know, blasting out your music, right? That's right. And there'd be... There'd be some place where everyone right. meets up. You know, you got to have right. that, that place. <laughs> the Party Cove. The Party Cove. Yeah, you got you to gotta have the Party Cove. So was there an album that, <laughs> that you can think of that sort of reminds you of what you were trying to do here from when uh, in your collection of albums? Uh, there's definitely, I definitely drew some inspiration from a handful of songs, um, not albums per se. I'm, I've always been more of a song guy than an album. Um, but you know, a lot of the record was when it was inspired when Joe Diffie passed away. Like he, when Joe passed away, um, I, the first thing I did was, hit my computer and start I just did like a deep dive of the Joe Diffie catalog and that sort of spread out into just that era of music the 90s it spread out into the that late 80s um, early to mid 90s era of country music and you know that was what was on the radio when I was a kid. So as much as I grew up with George Jones and Merle Haggard and Bob Wills, you know, when I got in the car, it was Patty Loveless and Garth Brooks and Joe Diffie and Mark Chestnut, you know, that was what was on the radio. Um, and that was also another, you know, I felt like the, the people who, listen to my music the majority of the people who listen to my music are roughly the same age as me thereabouts you know within within 10 or 15 years on either side um and they all grew up listening to the same stuff on the radio and i know how it made me feel when i was revisiting that stuff and i figured you know it made me feel good and it made me sort of reminiscent of a time when, when a time in my life when there was less worry about what was going on, uh, less worry about when I was going to get the next gig or how I was going to pay the next bill and this and that. I figured that was that was a that would help that would resonate with other people too. Um, so a lot of the inspiration from this record came from just how that era of music made me feel and just sort of taking the gamble that it would, it would resonate the same way with, with my listeners. Um, and I think it did, uh, or I think it does. I've gotten a lot of, a lot of feedback in that regard that people, you know, saying, Oh, this makes me feel like I'm a kid again, you know, which was my intent. You know, we all have less to worry about when we're young. So 
I want to take your mind off of off of uh, the realities of the world for 38 minutes or however long the record is, <laughs> you know. Does neon blue coincide with your own sense of optimism? It's less optimism and uh, I would say more hopefulness. Um, you know, it's, 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 I guess you could call it hopeful optimism. It's just, you know, everything's so messed up, the whole world. And, you know, we're just constantly inundated with, with insane stuff happening. Um, that I feel like if you can get away from it for 38 minutes, then you should, you should take that time, you know, don't forget about what's going on, but you know, everybody needs a break sometimes. So, you know, Amen. take your break, listen to neon blue. So are you going out on tour soon? Uh, yeah, I've been doing a little bit of touring. Um, I'm sort of in a rebuilding period. Um, since, you know, I did, I did a pretty, a pretty nice job of, uh, tearing my whole career down with booze after <laughs> Mr. Jukebox. So I'm in, I'm in a rebuilding phase right now. Um, but I am, I have started getting back out on the road, uh, getting on the horse as far as touring goes. I've been, I've been going back and forth to Texas a lot recently. Um, you know, we have the honky tonks up here and they have the dance halls down there and the two fit together pretty well. So I've been doing that a lot and I'm getting ready to go to the UK and Europe and hopefully, uh, Australia later on here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much, I'm very much looking forward to getting back out on the road full time. Like that is, that's my number one goal right now is to, to get back to road dogging it. Cause I've been sitting at my house for way too long. <laughs> well, you know, I talked to Ray Benson last year at let's sleep at the wheel. And he was yeah. talking about how he, he, he's been involved with the project to save uh, the Texas dance halls. Cause a lot of them were, have been yeah. around forever and some of them are in jeopardy of being closed and all of this. And so I'm getting back out there. I'm glad you're supporting the dance halls because I think they could use it. And, and this record would be the perfect thing yeah. for that, for those uh, venues. Yeah, we just played, um, we just played the Broken Spoke for the first time a few weeks ago and they already want us back. So it worked out pretty well. And getting to play the Broken Spoke was very cool for me. Uh, given the history of that place, standing on the same stage as Ernest Tubb uh, is is like I wouldn't have even considered that in my wildest dreams when I was 12 years old. I also wouldn't have considered the fact that I would end up knowing Ray Benson when I was a kid. You know, that is that's surreal to me as well. That's I grew up on Asleep at the Wheel. That's Ray Benson, Jason Roberts on fiddle. That's like, that's how I I spent hours teaching myself those fiddle parts when I was a kid 
on those Asleep at the Wheel records. And now I talk to him on the phone all the time. That's what I mean when I say that this is all still like surreal to me. Like, this is just crazy. Like, why am I talking to Ray Benson on the phone? How did that happen? <laughs> you know, it's wild. Well, Joshua, one day there'll be a young fiddle player who's who looks up to you and be excited to actually be able to pick up the phone and call you. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that'll be the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, the album is Neon Blue. We really appreciate the fact that you stopped by to talk about it. It's a really fun album, super melodic, and just, it's a trip. I, I loved it. So uh, good luck with touring and getting everything back together. Thank and you. Come see us in Memphis. Oh, I would love to. I can't wait to get over there. Thanks so much to the singing professor of country and Western music, Joshua Headley, for dropping by this hour to discuss his debut album for New West Records, Neon Blue, a brilliant study of what country music might have sounded like had it not veered into pop territory in the mid-90s. We recommend you head over to New West Records' website to order your copy today. Headley's a hard-working musician based out of Nashville, as you learned, and his vision as an artist is only getting better and better. Glad we could catch up with him. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights.